the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Thursday, June 22nd, 2023. I am Seth Liebson. Our phone number is 602-508-0960. I see Bill to my right. I got David Dahl, my producer, in uh, at noon at my 12 o'clock. Good to see you all. What is America to me? That's a refrain from a famous Frank Sinatra song titled The House I Live In. Sinatra first sang it for a short film on, of all things, anti-Semitism back in 1945. And he sang it the rest of his life, from his Madison Square Garden concert to his international concerts in the 1980s. The lyrics that may be familiar are, What is America to me? A name, a map, a flag I see, a certain word, democracy, a plot of earth, a street, the grocer and the butcher and the people that I meet, the children in the playground, the faces that I see, all races and religions, that's America to me. The church, the school, the clubhouse, the million lights I see, but especially the people, that's America to me. It resonated that with all our civic and taken-for-granted institutions— At the end, it was the people. I always think of that song as we get near the 4th of July holiday. Now, hold on to that a moment. This week, the New York Times asked its 17 op-ed columnists this question, quote, What one piece of culture captures the true spirit of our country? Be honest. If you had to advise people on how to really understand this country, would you suggest they read the Declaration of Independence? or watch all 44 seasons of Survivor. They go on. Some pieces of culture, deliberately or not, are so revealing, capture so much of a country's essence, that they can practically be read as foundational texts. We asked our columnists to pick the one piece of culture that, to them, best explains America. They came back with a wide range of answers, from a 1979 rap song to a literary classic. Each pick speaks to a different vision of this country and what it stands for, some more hopeful than others. But they all tell us something about the archetypes we root for, the mythologies we cling to, and the ideals we clash over and share. Close quote. The very setup is interesting to me with their suggestion of choice between the Declaration of Independence or Survivor. It's a hell of a valence that, just on that alone, think of the polarities. The Declaration of Independence is a document that broadcasts our country's formation based on the intrinsic dignity of the individual and the definition of the human being as something above beasts and other animals, and yet something below God. Survivor, as a series, broadcasts entertainment of humans acting as animals or beasts. To some credit, only one of the columnists chose Survivor— But then again, none of them chose the Declaration of Independence either, or anything else to use the New York Times question, foundational. 
Only one, Ross Dudak, chose what might be considered a classic piece of literature, even if it is from the 20th century. He chose the novel The Great Gatsby, one of my favorites. One of them chose the movie Pulp Fiction as representative of foundation, as representative and foundational in explaining American culture. It's an awfully entertaining movie with a certain artistic novelty, and it shows a bit of an American underbelly that exists in parts of America most don't see or may not know about, but does it capture the spirit of our country? It's awfully gruesome. Maureen Dowd chose the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers and writes this about that. Quote, she writes, In America now, it seems everyone has been snatched. If you haven't been snatched by some invader or other, you're nobody. America has undergone a toxic transformation in which many seem to have been taken over by ideas, slogans, conspiracy theories, lies, and emotions to the point that they have become unrecognizable, even to those close to them. Close quote. Yes, we saw that as recently as yesterday, with Adam Schiff and his Confederates saying he did great work as the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee as he disseminated and pushed false story after false story, using his credentials as an intelligence expert with access to classified information, classified intelligence that nobody else had access to. His confederates venerated him yesterday in the light of censure as he venerated himself. This from an impeachment committee chairman who literally read a false and invented telephone transcript of the president and Vladimir Zelensky into his opening comments on the hearings to impeach Donald Trump. Yesterday, it was revealed that then-CDC Director Rochelle Walensky lied to the nation in March of 2021 when she told television audiences and Congress that the vaccination wouldn't transmit COVID. If you were vaccinated, you wouldn't transmit COVID or get sick from it. But then an email was just discovered from two months before that showing she had knowledge of the problem of breakthrough infections, transmissions, and even deaths. You'll recall how the CDC handled this at the time in 2021. They just took off their website their weekly toll of breakthrough infections and deaths because the numbers were becoming too embarrassing. I wonder if that's the kind of thing where People lost jobs and livelihoods based on those lies. Counts with misdoubt is, quote, America undergoing a toxic transformation in which many seem to have been taken over by ideas, slogans, conspiracy theories, lies, and emotions to the point they have become unrecognizable. Cue the quote from the Chernobyl whistleblowing scientist here. What is the cost of lies? It's not that will mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies, then we no longer recognize the truth at all. Oh, postscript. So far, the New York Times has not reported on the Walensky lie. Charles Blow, op-ed columnist there, selected an early rap song as setting off a cultural improvement that birthed, as he writes, quote, a generation of street poets pouring out our laughter and our tears, imbuing aspiration and warning against dissent. It took the cross currents of black life and produced of them a chorus, and America and the world was enthralled. And finally it became an all-American music, holding within it the great American possibility of ascendance, of conversion, of dream-following and success-making, close quote. Does Charles Blow speak rightly here? 
Rap music made a lot of people wealthy, but it also led to a cataract of misogyny, rape, death, and rape culture and violence. Who do you think understands America better, by the way, Charles Blow or the multi-Emmy-winning jazz and classical musician Wynton Marsalis? Three years ago, during the BLM convulsions, Marsalis was asked about a rap was asked about rap music, and he said this to Essence magazine. I'm quoting directly: "Quote in 1985, I don't think we should have a music talking about a word I can't say, the N word, and a word I can't say but think female dog, and a word I can't say but think prostitution." It had no impact. I've said it. I've repeated it. I still repeat it. To me. Rap music is more da- damaging than a statue of Robert E. Lee, close quote. Wynton Marcellus. Anyway, searching for American culture, as the New York Times seemed to want, teasing the answers they were looking for and broadcasting about 15 pieces of work nobody in listening range here has likely ever heard of, I thought it interesting nobody did choose our Declaration of Independence, what Jefferson and Madison called the fundamental act of our union, even as it was offered up as a potential answer. And nobody chose anything like a classic John Ford Western, the, cinemata- the, cinema- the, cinematovic- the cinematic poetry of the entire discovery and forging of the West. No one chose anything from country music, which is played on more radio stations than any other genre. And nothing about jazz or a jazz musician either. A unique African-American contribution not only America, to America, but to the world. Certainly no one chose Frank Sinatra. In 1972, the film critic for the New York Times, Pauline Kael, was stunned by Richard Nixon's landslide victory and famously said, I don't know how Nixon could have won. I don't know anyone who voted for him. In 2016, just after the Trump election, the executive editor of the New York Times, Bill Keller, wrote a public letter admitting how the paper could miss a movement, an actual massive movement that elected Donald Trump. And he wrote, quote, Did Donald Trump's sheer unconventionality lead us and other news outlets to underestimate his support among American voters? Close quote. He then pledged to do better to try to understand this odd species, the Trump voter. Well, I think they failed. They may be doing a good job at the times of shaping America, but in so doing, they are in their cultural and political acculturation of the Philistines. You know, those who vote Republican, those who think boys are boys and girls are girls, those who might like meat, those who like country music and Westerns. They are further misreporting what is news, which they may not actually care about. They are succeeding, however, in driving Americans apart creating more divisiveness, missing huge swaths of American culture and belief, and when discovering it, marginalizing it and reprimanding it. There's an old John Conley song, Old School. tells the story of a high school reunion where a guy laments the the code in his class was all brought up with the values of their youth, which had become, shall we say, libertine. He was upset that the values he grew up with no longer existed, not anyway those who attended the reunion. I shared that song with a good buddy of mine who hadn't heard it, a graduate of West Point, a judge who used to be a lawyer who fought for America in one of her wars. I texted him, do you see anywhere like that in America anymore, anything we might call old school anywhere? He wrote back, quote, in the places that mainstream media and the elites ignore. 
I've been blessed to visit places in Greenville, Mississippi, Arkansas, West Texas, etc., where everyone knows where they are supposed to be for family dinners, summer picnics, and Fourth of July barbecues. The New York Times probably doesn't have a lot of subscribers in those places, but the thing is they don't want to. If, as Sinatra sang, and I think rightly, this country is most of all the people, you can't have contempt for them, all the while saying you are trying to discover and report on, as they say, the true spirit of our country. Anyway, some 4th of July foreshadowing. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, sadly, the Ocean Gate Titanic sub is... Uh, Gone and lost, and the five uh, five people on it uh, have to be have to be considered um, gone as well. I I find it always very interesting when you have a situation like this, even in a remote part of America, or better put, not even in America, where everyone with a television or access really to the internet or a Wi-Fi connection thinks about it and as they have been and talks about it as they have been over the last uh, several days, prays and hopes for the best and kind of learns about what exactly took place and what transpired, what was transpiring. It says something healthy about our still regnant hope and belief in life. You know, there was an international heart pumping and prayer request for these five people the rest of the world had never heard of. It says something healthy about us that we have that concern. You see it at times in America, too, when there's a story of a trapped person or train or cave or manhole. Says something good. Ben Dominich wrote something a little provocative about this. I'd like to share it with you. He wrote The plight of the Titanic submariners has engulfed the media over the past week and demanded the attention of countless rubberneckers to catastrophe. Parts of that attention are due to morbid curiosity or the ghoulish nature of social media's animosity toward the super rich, those who Ben Dreyfus terms the abnormal people on his substack. They heard the news, read the stories, took in all of the information that made you sad, and their first reaction was, anyone who can afford a $250,000 tourist trip deserves what they get. But another slice of attention is due, he writes, at least in part to the audacious nature of their chosen craft. While obviously the choice of this vehicle was a mistake, it resembles nothing so much as the decrepit blood-soaked sub in the video game Iron Lung the motivation of figuring out a different way to traverse the ocean at 13,000 feet below is not itself a bad thing. Hold my beer moments are better if they don't hold the possibility of a horrible, painful death, but never taking any risk? That's worse. In an age in which people have developed an unrealistic expectation of absolute safety in all activities and expect government to provide it, We are also attempting to open up space, the harshest and most challenging of frontiers. The conundrum 
is that these two goals are mutually exclusive, at least at current technological levels. Thus wrote Rand Simberg in a 2014 book, Safe is Not an Option. So at least give the crew of this expedition this much credit. They tried something crazy. Ultimately, it cost them their lives. But how many people will die today doing something even more foolish and without the merit of audacity and lose their lives? As a culture, we need more risk-taking and less comfort with things just staying as they are, Ben writes. Striving and searching for the new is a good thing, even if it ends in tragedy. You know what it turned my head to, that thought? David, I wonder if you had the same. You tend to think of these things a lot, similar ways as I. It turned me to the to the speech Ronald Reagan gave in 1986 when the challenger blew up and you were you were it's too young even the right word (laughs) young david for a reason right bill you remember this clearly the challenger explosion yes of course you do we all do who were alive and uh we as school kids were all watching it a lot of school yeah schools were simulcasting it and it blew up in our in front of our very eyes. So Reagan gave this short speech, and he said, I want to say something to the school children of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. He said, I know it is hard to understand, but some th- sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizon. The future, he said, doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew is pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow them. He said, I've always had a great faith in and respect for our space program, and what happened today does nothing to, dis- to m- diminish it. We don't hide our space program. We don't keep secrets and cover things up. We do it all up front and public. That's the way freedom is, and we wouldn't challenge it for a minute. We'll continue our quest in space. There will be more shuttle flights and more shuttle crews, and yes— More volunteers, more civilians, more teachers in space. Nothing ends here. Our hopes and journeys continue. I want to add that I wish I could talk to every man and woman who works for NASA or who worked on this mission and tell them, your dedication and professionalism have moved and impressed us for decades, and we know of your anguish. We share it. A historian said of Sir Francis Drake, he lived by the sea, died on it, and was buried in it. Their dedication, Ronald Reagan said, the crew on the Challenger, like Drake's, was complete. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. I could listen to that all day. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. You have a cultural update for us, young David, do you not? I sure you acculturated do. yourself. What was that? You acculturated yourself. I acculturated myself. By and, taking and, advice from me. Uh, yes. <laughs> and so too could the audience. I went home last night and I watched The Graduate. Finally, at long yes. last. Such. What did you. All right. Well, what did you think? Did you get it? Did I get it? Well, I would did like to. Did it move hear you? Did it mean anything? Your. 
your reasoning as to why it's one of your favorite films, because if I'm recalling, it's your favorite film. Yeah, that was, and Jaws. So it was so good to see Los Angeles in 1967. Yeah. I just got to say, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's just like the background of the episodes yeah. of Dragnet that yeah. I love. Yeah, yeah. Love that. Um, Berkeley did not look like that in 1967, <laughs> by the way. That, yeah. that, that was not what Berkeley looked like. Berkeley did not look like Beverly Hills. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been when Ronald Reagan was wrestling with the students and yes. faculty and yes, administration right. there, I and Abby Hoff and uh, yes. Mario Savio were running riot. Yeah, no, it no it's it's a it's a good film. Um, First of all, we say movie around here. A movie. Yeah, we're not or, French. Yeah, a motion yeah. picture. No, it's a movie. <laughs> it's a movie. We don't use the word film. Uh, I I imagine when you grew up watching that, you wanted to go out and buy an Alfa Romeo. The soundtrack <laughs> didn't do anything for you. Oh, the soundtrack's great. Yeah. None of the lines were memorable to you? Did well, you catch Richard? Say, did I you feel ca- like I can't say too much on air. I think you don't have to worry too much about and ruining I know, I, the plot. I know exactly what you were about to say. I did catch Richard Drake. You did? Yeah, yeah. Norman Fell? Norman Fell was the landlord? Oh, I didn't I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah Norman Fell. And you know what's funny is um, if you were of, of my generation and yeah. you watched Boy Meets World growing up, the uh, professor from that TV show, Mr. Feeney, is... Uh, Dustin Hoffman's father. The guy, the hotel clerk with the bell, Mm -hmm. that was Buck Henry, the guy who wrote it. Oh, really? Yeah, I can go on and on. It's interesting to me that Mrs. Robinson and Elaine, her daughter, were only about nine years apart in real age. And Dustin Hoffman and Mrs. Robinson, uh, who was married to Mel Brooks, right? Uh, They were only about eight years apart in age. It's kind of fun and funny. And the poster... You know the poster with the with legs? The, yes. You yeah. know whose legs they are? Did I do this with you? No, I, I you haven't. No. no, well, they're not Mrs. Robinson's. Okay. Did you ever watch Dallas? Well, yeah, I like a few episodes. Linda Gray, Mrs. J.R. Ewing. Those are oh, her okay. legs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The the dialogue to me is amazing. Um, the The trajectory, the hero's journey of it all. I mean, it's obviously not instilling and depicting of any kind of great ethic. But the other thing, and I think this had some resonance for me too, is when I was, uh, for, when I first, the reason I first watched it when I was about, I probably was 17 or so, I had a teacher that said I looked and reminded him just as Dustin Hoffman looked and spoke in that movie, that I looked and talked like him. You don't act timid at all to me. He yeah, seems so I can, timid I can, I can do it. I can do it. I, I can, I can, I, I can probably recite almost the whole movie if I had to. I've seen it so many times. Well, tell me what that movie means. Oh no, to Mrs. You. Robinson! I think you're the most attractive of all my parents' friends. <laughs> I can talk like him. It's a great depiction of an interesting moment. Um, and anyway, great music. Great music. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's very funny. It's a funny movie. When he says to his parents, I'm going to marry Elaine Robinson. And they said, well, we're going to go call, we should it. call yes. the Robinsons. And they say, and he says, oh, I wouldn't do that. And they said, why not? And he said, they don't know. He said, well, let's call Elaine and congratulate her. And he says, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and they said, why not? And he yeah, says, yeah. she doesn't know. Yeah. And the dad says, Benjamin, this this whole plan seems a little half baked. He goes, "Oh no, it's completely baked." <laughs> that kind of stuff, you're just you just don't get that anymore. Anyway, I loved it, and it made Dustin Hoffman. Um, all right, we have a lot more uh, serious stuff to do here, but I'm glad you watched it. What's your? I uh, don't have a lot here in the segment. What's your pin say? I've got a Johnson Kennedy pin. 
In that order? In that order. Now, do you know what that is from? Sure, 1960. No. No? No, I got gotcha. you. This yeah. is from 1964. Oh, really? And this is a, uh, a a Unity ticket yeah. from... Oh, with Robert. When, yes, with, with Bobby. Oh, yes, you got yes. me. You did get yes, me. Yes, when, when Johnson had to say, no, no members of my cabinet yeah. will be part of yeah, my yeah, yeah, future yeah. administration. You got because me. Because the people wanted Bobby. Good on you. Yeah. You got me. Thank you for that. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Just when I think I uh, knew everything, I don't think I knew this. Credit to you, David, for pointing it out to me. Um, a speech was written for uh, Richard Nixon in 1969 in the event that the moon landing did not go successfully. Uh, it was written by Bill, William Sapphire. Many remember him as a conservative or the only conservative columnist at the New York Times. Uh, you want It's short enough, right? Yeah. This was written for Nixon in case it's titled An Event of Moon Disaster. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. It's a nice construction. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery, but they also know that there is hope for mankind and their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a mother earth that dared send two of her sons into the unknown. In their, in their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man. In ancient days, men looked at stars and saw their heroes in the constellations. In modern times, we do much the same. But our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood. Others will follow and surely find their way home. Man's search will not be denied, but these men were the first and they will remain foremost in our hearts. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. It says, after the president's statement at the point when NASA ends communication with the men, a clergyman should adopt the same procedure as a burial at sea commending their souls to the deepest of the deep and concluding with the Lord's Prayer. I had not known of that, David. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. It's of a piece with what we were talking about with Ronald Reagan and the Challenger, which, yes, it really is good. Um, Ronald Reagan and the Challenger and uh, what uh, Ben Dominich was writing about the Titanic exploration. Um, it's... Uh, it's a um it's it's just an amazing thing the first reaction i had when i read that bill sapphire speech for richard nixon was you know what i was thinking boy just as you might hear joe biden say you know the state of rhetoric and the gravity of presidential rhetoric was taken so seriously back then you think of nixon's speechwriters for example William Sapphire, Patrick Buchanan, Ben Stein. People don't realize Ben Stein was a speech. So very gifted. You think of the Reagan speechwriting team. That Challenger speech was written by Peggy Noonan. And, um, 
ends, of course, with that famous poem of slip the, slip the surly bonds of earth, touch the face of God. And uh, she knew he'd like it, she said. She knew he'd like it because she said she knew he'd have obviously read that poem as a, uh, as a kid. Anyway, um, rhetoric was different then. And Nixon knew how to give a speech. Certainly knew how to give a speech. Okay. I wanted to do a few. Oh, did you guys see this? This is great. And by great, I mean awful. I, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't set things up that way. Randy Weingarten, we spoke about her here yesterday, the head of the American Federation of Teachers. She was just appointed to the Department of Homeland Security Council focused on a, a council of emergency management and preparedness measures in American schools. If I had a camera here and you could have seen Bill's face, it, it, it would have filled the rest of this segment up. Just the, just, just, just the expression of your face and the nodding of your stiff neck. <laughs> Is it feeling better? <laughs> okay. Noah Rothman writes, Before we go, assuming that American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten lacks the national defense credentials to justify her appointment to a Department of Homeland Security Council focused on emergency management and measures in American schools, we should take a beat. Throughout her career, Weingarten has demonstrated foresight and vigilance in guarding against threats to America's school children and the nation as a whole. For example, consider the National School Boards Association's warning to President Joe Biden in the fall of 2021 that some parents of students might have become radicalized by both pandemic-related restrictions on in-person schooling and the efforts in that period to introduce politically divisive social commentary into public school curricula. The NSBA had seen an increase, quote, in extremist hate, in extremist hate organizations showing up at school board meetings, close quote. And if those attendees or anyone else made threats against school board members, that's not just a criminal offense. It, quote, could be the equivalent of a form of domestic terrorism and hate crime, close quote. They endorsed the application of federal law enforcement tools like those provided to the executive branch after 9-11 in the Patriot Act, to investigate and prosecute potential offenders. Thank you, DOJ, Weingarten tweeted while referencing an October 21 memo authored by Joe Biden's Attorney General in response to the NSBA's advisement. To her credit, Weingarten stripped the Justice Department's memo of its plausible claim to have been inspired only by credible threats of violence. Quote, Merrick Garland tackles threats to educators amid critical race theory furor, close quote, she declared. The NSBA eventually had to apologize for the memo, but Weingarten has not, and she has not backtracked on her praise of it. Some might call that intransigence, but others would surely praise her for showing courage in her conviction that the distinctions between a concerned parent and a domestic terrorist are merely a matter of degree. It is also worth dwelling on the admittedly few issues she has discussed publicly that relate directly to national defense on both the domestic front and abroad. First at home, quote, White supremacists present the gravest terror threat to the United States, Weingarten observed in September 2020. She cited a draft document produced internally and leaked to Ben Wittes at the Lawfare blog, who criticized the document for actually diminishing the prominence of white supremacy relative to other domestic violent extremism, which he attributed to influence from 
Trump supporters. Given the perpetrators of U.S.-based mass casualty events in recent years, that might have been prudent, but Weingarten declined to revise her assessment then, and she's not revising it now. When it comes to overseas threat, the future DHS advisor has trained her eyes on the skies, not in any vigilance against incoming, but in case of inclement weather. The dispatch that caught Weingarten Weingarten's attention via the Union of Concerned Scientists cited 2,800 cases of heat stroke among America's 1.4 million active-duty military personnel to demonstrate why climate change is one of the foremost readiness challenges faced by the armed forces. I love that. Climate change is one of the greatest readiness challenges faced by the armed forces. Well, you get the point. The assets Randy Weingarten will bring to DHS are manifold and self-evident. Her qualifications for the post extend well beyond her value as a political operative, and her inclusion on this council probably has nothing to do with her union's capacity to fundraise for the Democrats. We need Weingarten on that wall. Surely we'll all be safer as a result. We'll be right back. How's uh, this administration handling the economy? Stock volatility, stock market volatility, bank failures, talk of a recession on the horizon, inflation, double what it is now than when Joe Biden took office. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? A portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like, with no surprises where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it. Whatever you choose, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio, and it's offered up by our friends at Y-Refi. Y-Refi is local. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road and the 101 IF, and I can tell you you will not get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign anything. When you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I trust them, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. John is in Phoenix. Hello, John. Yes, hello, Seth. How are you? I am fine. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you. Hey, there were a couple of things that prompted me to give you a quick call. Okay. Um, one is you mentioned the graduate you guys, you and young David, talked about. And I'm about five years older than you. That was my favorite There's, film. Yeah, kid. and it's hard to say why in a weird way, too, right? But, yeah, it's hard to it explain just, it. No, it just... It you either, just, you, you it either just get was, it or you don't kind of thing, I guess. It was just yeah. pretty perfect. It I was mean, pretty perfect for me, too. The, the humor, the yeah. soundtrack, yeah. the acting, yeah. everything. Yeah. So, yeah. so April Come She Will was a fantastic, oh it's a little bit more obscure. Oh, my goodness gracious. One of the most sad. I mean, when Simon and Garfunkel hit it out of the park, they hit it out of the park, huh? I love it. Yeah. One of my favorite Simon and Garfunkel songs, yeah. which well, I wanted to tell you, I saw Simon and Garfunkel about 20 years ago in a reunion concert. So did I. In Anna. Anaheim. I'm yeah. sorry? I did, too. I'll tell you who... Yeah, tell me the story. Go ahead. Oh, I, I bought... I used to buy single tickets to shows, yeah. so I'd get a great seat. I was sitting, like, third row, 
I was sitting around like Warren Beatty and his family yeah. and Ed Benning. Yeah. Um, sitting around. Oh, um, Graham Nash was right near me. Uh huh. Well, but, John, I gotta I gotta go to a top of the hour break. You want to stay? Uh, you have a, a yeah, yeah, I do thing because you I do want to. I'll just tell you when I saw them in in reunion um, at intermission, John. You'll love this. They said, "Now we'd like to uh, bring out two people that influenced us more than anyone else." And they brought out the Everly Brothers, and they played Wake Up, Little Susie together. Pretty good show. If you'll hold on, John, we'll get to you. I know you have politics on your mind. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.